and it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live or at Joy620, or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, Google Play, iTunes, Podbeam, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. Today we have a lot to talk about, a lot of things going on around the country when it comes to life and abortion. We had some movements in Congress uh, and really, you know, the curtain was pulled back on where people stand on the issue of life and abortion. There's some conversations happening within our state when it comes to life and abortion. This is Sanctity of Life Month. This coming weekend, January 22nd, will be the 50 year, 50 years since Roe was decided in the courts. Of course, June 24th, 2022 will be a, a day that goes down in the history books that Roe was overturned. But this this weekend, I'll be speaking at Black Oak Heights Baptist Church in the morning for their two services. Then I'll speak at the March for Life, the local March for Life here in Knoxville. You can get all the information for that at Tennessee Right to Life. Uh, look them up. But I'll be speaking to start the event of March for Life this Sunday, January 22nd. Uh, and I believe it starts at 2 o'clock. But again, you can find all the details. I'll try to get those to you before the end of the show. But all the details for that. Uh, will be at the Tennessee Right to Life. Looking forward to that. A lot to talk about. Today, though, I want to start with, there's a, a piece over at the National Review. And it's in it's kind of a, a piece that is uh, answering something that was written in the New York Times. And I do believe I might have mentioned the New York Times piece that we're going to get to. But, uh, but the title of this article is the question, let's see, the title of the article uh, is actually, We Do Know When Human Life Begins. It says, in a recent New York Times piece asking, when does life begin, religion correspondent Elizabeth uh, Diaz presents multiple lines of evidence to conclude that the question is simply too complex to be answered. She relays the poignant story of a woman who is pro-choice, but who experienced a 16-week miscarriage as the loss of her child, Maya. She enumerates how different states, Arizona, South Carolina, different cultures, China, and ancient Egypt, and different religious traditions... Uh, Judaism and medieval Christianity have offered different answers to the question of when life begins. She notes that defenders of the view that life begins at sperm-egg fusion often cite, quote, Christian principles, suggesting that this conclusion is nothing more than a religious conviction. Uh, Diaz acknowledges that, quote, more than half of American adults say the statement, human life begins at conception, so a fetus is a person with rights, describes their views at least somewhat well. Yes, she goes on to present contrasting views offered by biologists, physicians, philosophers, and clerics. Now, let me be clear. Outside of a few quibbles with the biology, the embryo clearly does not arise from a fraction of the cells present at the time of the implantation. The, the placenta is manifestly not a new organ that a woman's body makes, and it is absurd to characterize a pregnancy as a woman's making a new organism with her body. I agree with all of the evidence Diaz presents and with the obvious fact that opinions on this question are both complex and diverse. What I do not agree with is the conclusion that simply because people hold diverse opinions on the subject, the question of when life begins cannot be definitively answered. The question of when human life begins is a matter of biology, not opinion. And the scientific facts are unambiguous. The life of a new human being initiates at the instance of a sperm-egg fusion. While some individuals may deny this conclusion, it is supported by hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific papers and is entirely uncontested in the scientific literature. 
Diaz accurately reports that a scientific consensus on this question has existed for over 150 years, ever since sperm-egg fusion was first viewed using a microscope. Amanda Clark, the president-elect of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, hardly a bastion of pro-life sentiment, clearly endorses this consensus, telling Diaz, from the biological point of view, sorry, I need to say life of a organism begins at fertilization. In considering the specific question of when human life begins, the organism in question would be a human organism. And another term for human organism is human being. Given the clarity of the long-standing scientific evidence, why is there such a diversity of opinion on this question? I would argue that a number of confusions and inaccuracies cloud the question, making it appear more complex than it really is. The irrelevant appeal to historical opinions, it is important to note that prior to the application of medical ultrasound to the field of an OBGYNs in the late 1950s, human prenatal development was largely inaccessible to direct observation. Consequently, although scientists, philosophers, bioethicists, and theologians have considered the origins of human life for a long time, the conclusions they have drawn were based on very little factual evidence, and appealing to such historical authorities yields a plethora of contradictory opinions, just as Diaz notes. Yet why is it meaningful to appeal to opinions that were formulated centuries before we understood even the most basic biological facts about human life and human embryos? Before microscopes, before cell theory, before the discovery of DNA, opinions formulated in complete ignorance of the relevance or the relevant biology are free to take any form they choose. And the diversity of those opinions is entirely irrelevant to the actual scientific facts. Dias offers the familiar circle of life argument to conclude that it is impossible to determine when life begins. Dismissing it as not a good question, Cambridge professor Nick Hopwood says, quote, the egg is alive, the sperm is alive, the cells from which they develop are alive. It is a continuum. Yet this argument is profoundly misleading. While an embryo arises from the fusion of living sperm and egg cells, an embryo in a human organism, not merely a human cell, and, and human organisms can be distinguished from human cells by clear scientific criteria. The essential characteristic of an organism is the ability of parts to act together in an orderly manner to support the health and survival of the entity as a whole. We know this. We know this. And I could go on and on. But the reality is we have known that life begins at conception. I mean, this article even says the diversity of opinion on when life begins largely reflects the diversity of opinion on the independent question D.S. raises at the conclusion of her essay. When does the responsibility for life begin and end? You see, we're not struggling with the scientific facts of biology, facts that no one credibly debates. We are struggling with the far more nuanced question of what makes a human being a person. When does human life become worthy of living? And, when, and we have placed this more difficult question under the simpler heading of when does life Begin. You see, it all goes with abortion. We can wrestle with, you know, when does life begin and all that, but the reality is when life begins is settled. It's settled science. It's settled in, in the Christian faith. Psalm 139, you knitted us together in a mother's womb. We can go to Jeremiah where it talks about I was knitted together in the secret. You knew me before the first star was in the sky. These are things that the text points to. Now, now a non-Christian would go, well, you can't cite the Bible to me because I don't believe the Bible. Okay. Do you believe science? Because science says that life begins at conception. Sperm, egg, fusion. 
fertilization happens. We have a new life, a new human organism. That new human, human organism grows. It's the same thing I told the students at chapel the other day. That, that human organism grows. The DNA within that human, the, the, the organs, the heart, the fingerprint, the hair color, the eye color, the fingernails, the toenails, the legs, the arms, the list goes on and on. All of these things we know. And again, it goes back to when, when someone tells you they're pregnant, you don't go, with what? Like, what, what's going to happen with that pregnancy? No, you, you celebrate with them. Or you, or you immediately get nervous because you don't know if they're excited about being pregnant or not. Well, why would you get nervous if it's not a life? Why would it change your, your world forever if it's not a life? Why would you get excited for them if, if it's not a baby that they're about to have? Why would you buy them gifts? Why would you throw a baby shower? Why would you say you, being a mom and being a dad is the greatest thing that's ever happened? Why, why would you say these things if we don't know if it's a life or not? You see, this has nothing to do with when life begins, because we all know when life begins. Even those that would stand in opposition to, uh, to what we stand for know when life begins. They know it. Science knows it. And anyone that's credible knows it. What they want is the ability to end that life. You see, it's not a question of whether it's alive or, you know, they can, they can say blob of tissue, clump of cells. They can say all those things. Those things matter not because those things deny science. They deny the text and the scripture. They deny rational thought. So if someone's going to deny rational thought, then there's not much discussion we can have. So the question remains, we now know, and it is it is it has been proven and is believed that life begins at conception. Now that we know that, what are we going to do with it? Now the question that we're having as a society and a culture is, when does that life that we all admit begins at conception, when is it worthy of protection? And frankly, there are some folks on, in our society and in our culture that would say, never. Even it, because one would say, well, it deserves protection outside of the womb. Well, does it? Because there are some that would say that if a baby survives a botched abortion, we're not going to protect it outside of the womb. So does it, is it worthy outside of the womb or not? And then you have Canada doing assisted suicide and they're, they're just opening the doors to, to ending the life of humans outside of the womb. So does the life outside of the womb have value and worthy, is worthy of protection or not? These are the questions that we have to ask. It's not about asking does life begin in conception because we know it does. And anyone that says otherwise is, is mistaken or lying or just refuse to admit the truth. So, so the, the, the debate, the, the wrestling that we're doing as a society isn't about when life begins. It's about when is that life worthy of protection? When is that life worthy of rights? When is that life worthy? You see, these are the things that we're going to wrestle with. Now, that's going to make people uncomfortable. Because now they're having to admit that 
that an abortion does, in fact, end the life of a child. You see, they're going to have to admit that, and that's going to make them look callous. This is why they never wanted to get to the point of having the discussion on when is a life worthy of protection. They want to argue about when life begins, because if we can say life begins at 10 weeks, then it doesn't matter what we do from zero week to to nine weeks. You see, if we can say life begins at 15 weeks, then we can do whatever we want to that whatever it is in the womb between zero and 15 weeks. But if we say life begins at conception, that's going to that's going to cause us to do some uncomfortable things and say some uncomfortable things and have some very difficult conversations. Because if life begins at conception, anything I do to that life in the womb after conception is taking that life. And and see, that's going to make people uncomfortable. Now, that's been the reality for, for decades. But no one wants to talk about it. And so if we can all agree, which if you don't agree that life begins at conception, then you're just not paying attention. You refuse to read the literature. Then, you know, I don't know how, what kind of conversation I can have with you. But, but if we can all agree that life begins at conception, then anything we do to that life in the womb after, after conception is ending a life. Now, there are going to be some that says, I know that, and I still think it's okay. And then we have to wrestle with that. Then there's going to be some that say, I know that's a life, which is why I stand for life and stand in, a, in opposition to abortion no matter what. And then there's going to be some that say, I know it's a life, but it's not really, uh, it's not really like a full life until second trimester. And, and this is what we're seeing play out in front of us now that Rose overturned. We're seeing this in real time. You're seeing states make these decisions, have these conversations. You're seeing our own state struggle with this. You you got folks that are claiming to be conservative and pro-life going, well, we need exceptions. We need this. Well, the question is, when you start adding in all these exceptions, now you're dealing with when is a life worthy of protection? Because the, the, the question of when life begins has been settled. So now what you're doing is saying... Some lives have more value and are worthy and more worthy than others. And then that's, that's something we need to wrestle with. It's something I don't believe in. I don't believe that some lives have more value than others, but maybe some of you do. We'll talk more when we come back. So we begin the show by talking about when life begins. Now, you're probably thinking, well, Andrew, you know, you, you talk about this a lot. Surely you do be- believe that life begins conception. Yes, I believe that. But I think a lot of folks in our society and our culture don't realize that the science is settled. They think that people that say that life begins at conception are some kind of right-wing Christian nut jobs, fundamentalist, and, and, and are just lunatics. That, I think that's what the, the society as a whole believes that anyone that would say life begins at conception but the reality is science is settled on that as well. So yes, my, the genesis of, of who I am and my belief system and my worldview comes from the text, from the scripture. And so we see in, in different parts of the word about God knitting us together, God creating us, God entering into those secret places, intimately 
uh, putting us together, knitting us together. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we can go text after text after text. Even Job said, it is better that I wasn't born. Job pointing back to his birth. John the Baptist and Jesus interacting with each other in the womb. Like we, we have scripture that points to life in the womb. But it's not just scripture. It's also science. It's also technology. We've been able to see via ultrasound, via microscope, what happens when a sperm fuses with an egg. We, we know that. Yet we still have this debate back and forth. And that was put on uh, for everyone to see in Washington this past week. Listen to this. Nearly every House Democrat on Wednesday last week voted against legislation that would require immediate medical attention for babies who were born alive after an attempt was made to abort them. The House passed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which says any infant born alive after an attempted abortion is legal person for all purposes under the laws of the United States. Doctors would be required to care for those infants as a reasonably diligent and conscientious health care practitioner would render to any other child born alive. The bill passed 220 to 210, and all 210 of the no votes came from Democrats. Only one Democrat voted for the bill, Representative Henry Cooler of Texas, and one other Democrat of Texas voted present. Following that level of care, doctors would be required to admit those infants to a hospital for further care. Any violation of this standard would result in fines and imprisonment for up to five years or both. Republicans argued on the floor that comments from Virginia's former Democratic Governor Ralph Northam are an example of why the law needs to be clarified to protect newborn infants who survive abortions. Northam was talking about third trimester abortions and appeared to indicate support for delivering babies that might still be alive before taking their life outside the womb. We all know in 2019, then Governor Northam of the state of Virginia stated this, the infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. The cavalier attitude he displayed towards human life is just wrong. This is what Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio said. It is simple. Infants born alive following an abortion are kids or children. All, all newborns deserve the same level of care. Nonetheless, Democrats overwhelmingly rejected the bill. Some, like Representative Jerry Nadler, uh, argued that the bill would set up new requirements that would directly interfere with the doctor's medical judgment and dictate a medical standard of care that may not be appropriate in all circumstances. And I watched him say that. It's nonsense, but I digress. He and other Democrats said the requirement to eventually take infants to survive abortion to a hospital may not be the best entrance of the family. Several others rejected Republican stated purpose for being up, bringing up the bill and accused the GOP of trying to outlaw abortion, although the bill places no new limit on abortion. We all know what this is about. It's not about the protection of newborn children. It's about control, said Representative Sidney uh, Dove of California. It's about the nationwide abortion ban that Republicans have been inciting to enact since the overturning of Roe. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries accused Republicans of bringing up the bill as part of your march to criminalize abortion care, to impose a nationwide ban to set into motion government-mandated pregnancies. I mean, folks... I could I could go on and on. It, this is the most disheartening, depressing political theater that I've seen in quite some time. And and both sides do it in in different ways. 
you know, they'll, they'll, both sides will, will try to bring up a bill and they'll try to corner the other side to vote a certain way that, that goes against convictions, you know, whether it be on climate change or gun control or, or whatever. The difference here is all the bill said, all the bill said was if a baby survives a botched abortion, they deserve all the rights of any other infant and all the protections of any other infant. And, and, and no one took the, the former governor out of context. That is what he said. We will get the baby comfortable. Then we'll have a conversation with the parents on what to do with said baby. That is what he said in full context. And, and so a, a law and a Congress that would simply say, if an abortion failed and now we have a baby outside of the womb living, we should do everything we can to protect it. That should not be a stretch for anyone. Democrat, Republican, Independent, Socialist. That should not be a stretch. But again, it's the golden calf. So what did they do? They, they said, this isn't really about saving a life of a child. This is about banning abortion outright. Nothing in the bill says anything about banning abortion outright. They would never get that passed in Congress. I don't even think they could get it passed with the Republicans in Congress. They certainly won't get it passed the Senate. It would never be signed by the president. So to say that is nonsense and is just flat out lies. It's nonsense. But they're able to get in front of the microphone and say this nonsense and act like they are uh, at a position to, to sway our country. And so again, it goes back to they want to create confusion. So they know what the bill says. They know the bill has nothing to do with banning abortion. But if we get on the microphone and we do these interviews and we say that it's about banning abortion, then, then our constituents are going to say that bill is about banning abortion. When in reality, the bill has nothing to do with banning abortion. It says nothing about that. It simply says if a baby survives an abortion, that baby deserves protections, period. There was even a congressman, a congresswoman from Michigan. From Michigan. She invoked the Bible in her attempt to justify voting to let babies be left for dead if they survive an abortion. She, she believed, I believe she quoted Jeremiah. In, in that text, it says that you placed me in my mother's womb. You knitted me together. You, you created me in my mother's womb. And, and she has the nerve to say, you notice the Bible doesn't say you place me in my doctor's womb or in my government's womb or in the man's womb. You place me in my mother's womb, which means women can do whatever they want to with whatever is in their womb. That is what she's arguing. But I'm called extreme for being pro-life. It's not extreme to err on the side of life. That's not extreme. But yet, in, in our current societal makeup, and, and what now passes as a, uh, as a politician on the left, is not only do you have to be for abortion no matter what, all the way to nine months, you have to then also double down and say, even if a baby survives an abortion, it's not up to me to say what, what happens with that baby. And I bet you these same folks would say that if an animal had a baby, 
an animal's being spayed and they had a baby, the last thing they would want to do is is in the life of those those animals. They would want to protect them, but not when it comes to humans. See, they don't want to do that. These are the things that we're wrestling with as a society. These are the things that, that are happening in D.C. That's why we have to be engaged. Look, the, the argument on when life begins is no longer up for debate. We know when it's up. We, we know when life begins. The question now is when is that life worthy of protection? And we just saw there's 200 folks in D.C. that would say it's not even worthy of protection outside of the womb. What are we going to do with that? We'll be back. So as we continue the show, again, there, there's a lot happening, and, and something happened a couple of weeks ago, and I haven't had a chance to talk about it on this show, but, but the FDA made a pretty big, uh, an, well, not, not even an announcement. They, they didn't put out a press release. They, they, didn't, uh, they didn't do a number of things. What, what they did was just quietly change some language on their website, and, and this is what happened. The Biden administration on Tuesday, this was a couple of weeks ago, formalized the process to allow retail pharmacies to join the abortion pill business. The policy change, originally announced more than a year ago, is the latest example of President Joe Biden doing the bidding of the abortion industry at the expense of women's health and safety. This piece is over at theheritage.org. Here's what you need to know about the Food and Drug Administration's latest move and what it means. The first pill in the process uh, takes the life of the unborn child by cutting off a hormone called progesterone which was required to sustain a pregnancy. So what it does, in essence, is it starves the baby of progesterone. The second pill causes contractions to empty the uterus. Together, this regimen is approved to be used up to 70 days, 10 weeks into pregnancy. The FDA has a safety program called a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy for certain drugs to ensure that the benefits outweigh the risk. Mifepristone has needed such a strategy since its original approval in 2000. These specifics have weakened over the years, but one constant was a requirement that Mifepristone be dispensed in person by a qualified prescriber in certain healthcare settings, such as a clinic or hospital. That means abortion pills weren't treated like typical prescription drugs. Abortion providers would affirmatively opt in to be able to prescribe them. For many years, that largely contained abortion pill provision to abortion clinics not rank and file primary care doctors or OBGYNs. In December 2021, the FDA weakened uh, that rule, opening the door to telemedicine abortion and abortion pills by mail. The agency signaled it would create a policy for retail pharmacies to become certified to distribute abortion pills. A year later, that process is finally in motion. These new rules describe the administrative and compliance requirements for the pharmacy certification process. In practice, it means that a woman can have a telemedicine chat with an abortion pill prescriber, then fill the prescription at a local pharmacy without being seen in person by a healthcare provider before obtaining the pills. The consequences are dire. Abortion pills aren't safe. Mifepristone is associated with 28 deaths, thousands of serious adverse effects, and more than 500 life-threatening complications that, are no, that, that we know of due to weak state and federal reporting requirements. The complication rate from abortion pills is four times that of first trimester surgical abortion. One recent study found that between 2002 and 2015, emergency room visits following a chemical abortion increased by more than 500%. The FDA's own Mifepristone Q&A shows how ideology is driving decision-making. 
In one Q&A, the FDA says abortion pill prescribers must have the ability to date pregnancies accurately and the ability to diagnose ectopic pregnancies. Why does this matter? Mifepristone is approved up to 10 weeks. According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, half of women will incorrectly recall the date of their last menstrual period. In one study, 40% of women who had a first trimester ultrasound had their estimated due date adjusted by more than five days. Without an ultrasound, there is no way to know if a woman is definitely within the 10-week window. And the only way to rule out ectopic pregnancy where the egg is implanted outside the uterus is to perform an ultrasound. In the very next Q&A, the FDA says that the This rule program does not require patients to see a healthcare provider in person before obtaining mifepristone and that it is not necessary for the rules to mandate how providers clinically assess patients for duration of pregnancy and for ectopic pregnancy. The FDA can't have it both ways. An ultrasound is necessary to accurately date a pregnancy and rule out ectopic pregnancy, full stop. But under the the new rules, the FDA will allow your local pharmacy to give women abortion pills without actually knowing if she's eligible to take them in the first place. So time will tell if pharmacies will get in on the abortion business. In states with strong pro-life laws to protect women and unborn children, the FDA's latest action will have no effect. But in many states, the prospect of your local pharmacy turning into an abortion clinic is a very real possibility. Now look, why is that important? First off, I do want to point out that the state of Tennessee already has laws in the books that will will not allow pharmacies to to hand out these abortion pills. So I've I've been in talk with legislators, talk with the Attorney General's office, the state of Tennessee, this will not change anything for the state of Tennessee. But what this will do is change things in a California, in a New York, in any state that that allows for abortion up to 10 weeks. It's going to change things. And and the fear, right now we already know these women are taking these abortion pills and going home. And they're, they're taking the pill and they're, they're having the abortion at home with very little to no oversight. We already know that's happening. We already know for a fact that these, these patients are getting these pills after 10 weeks. But if you, if you make it easier for them to get the pills, there's going to be even less oversight. If you don't require an ultrasound to, to see even if it's a healthy pregnancy, to see if, the, if it's an ectopic pregnancy, to see, to see what's happening, to see if the ACG levels are where they need to be. All those things, if we're not tracking those things, now you have a woman and a baby in harm's way. And, and so if you want to talk about women's health and if you want to talk about protecting women, this is not protecting women at all. This is putting them in danger. Certainly it's putting their baby in danger, but it's definitely putting them in danger as well. And so it's, it's interesting to me that the FDA would do this. It doesn't surprise me. But, but this, is where we're, this is where we're at. This is why back during the election, when folks were saying, oh, Joe Biden's a moderate. Oh, Joe Biden's personally pro-life. Oh, Joe Biden's Catholic. Pro-lifers should be okay. I even had some Republicans tell me, some conservatives tell me. Yeah, but but he's not going to go all in on abortion. He's one that you can trust. Under his watch, there has been more rule changes to make abortion easier than any president in the history of this country.
period. So for anyone that wanted to tell me, oh, he's he's moderate Joe. Good old Joe, he's not going to do that. Now we see. Almost three years into his presidency, and, and this is what we're seeing. FDA rule changes. Making abortion easier. Telemedicine abortion. Go get your abortion pill at the local Walgreens. Mailboxes becoming the abortion clinic. But I'm, but I'm the extreme one, remember. I'm the extreme one because I, I want to protect life. They're not extreme for just removing all these rules and saying, oh, you'll be fine. Just take these pills at home and, you know, good luck to you. Is that the direction we're going? Because it, once you make it easier, what you're going to have, you're going to have mobile units that are providing these uh, situations and these, these appointments and, and abortions. And then you're going to have, very similar to what we've seen in, in the drug industry with pain med shops popping up everywhere, this is what I fear will happen, is, is abortion clinics kind of popping up, uh, not, not brick and mortar necessarily, but hey, come to our website, we'll have a fancy website, we'll do a telemedicine, we'll, we'll talk to you over the phone uh, via FaceTime or some kind of chat form, and then, and then you know, you just go to your local Walgreens, CVS, and, and you know, good luck to you. And then they'll close up shop as people have some side effects and bad things happen, and then they'll just move to the next state. They'll make their money, and they'll move on. This isn't about protecting women. You see, this isn't about empowering women. This is about making it as easy as possible to obtain an abortion. They've, they're now saying the quiet part out loud. Oh, you have too many kids. We don't want big families. You can't finish college and have a baby. Put that off as long as you can. And you know what? You should be able to have any kind of sex that you want, and, and you shouldn't have to worry about birth control either. Just get an abortion. You see, this is the, the direction we're going in our secular culture. So this is what I've been saying over the last few weeks at different churches that I've been speaking at is we need revival. This isn't going to change with an election. Elections are important. This isn't going to change with a court decision. Court decisions are important. This isn't going to change with the city council election. City councils are important. This is going to change with revival, with heart change. It breaks my heart to know that people feel this way. It breaks my heart that there are people in D.C. that don't even want to, pass, don't even want to vote for a law that would protect a baby that survived an abortion. But it breaks my heart that I even have friends and family members that would agree with that. And that's tough. It's hard to, to deal with. Because I don't understand it. I understand it from a biblical worldview that we, we live in a fallen world and, and everything's been fractured and the chaos. I, I understand that side of it. But just rationally, and I know that's my mistake as I'm trying to, to deal with irrational things with with rational thought, but rationally, I don't know how you vote against a bill that seeks to protect babies that have survived a botched abortion. And rationally, I don't know how the FDA that, that should be protecting us when it comes to food and drugs would then say, yeah, I mean, yeah, just go get the abortion pill and take it at home. Good luck to you. 
How is that protecting anybody? So pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for a revival. We'll be back. So as we finish up today, look, there's a lot happening in, in our country and when it comes to life and abortion. I'm, I'm flying out, uh, actually here in just a little bit, to head to D.C. for some meetings uh, around this topic, around, hey, in a post-row era, what does this mean? What does this mean? And, and people will be in that meeting from all parts of the country. So they'll be in states that, that allow for abortion all the way up to nine months, states that allow for abortion up to 15 weeks, and then states like ours that don't allow for abortion. There'll be people from different walks of life, from the business industry to nonprofit industry to churches and ministries. And these are conversations that we're going to be wrestling with. And, and so there, there's part of me, if I'm honest, when, when I read these things and see these things, I just want to throw my hands in the air and I want to disengage. Because there's part of me going, is it worth the effort? Is it worth the time? Is it worth the stress? Is it worth the frustration? Is it worth the anger? And I'm just going to be honest and transparent with you. I'm, I'm still working through that. <laughs> Some days I feel like it is, and other days I, I, I just kind of am like, what are, what are we doing? But I feel like the Lord has convicted me to be engaged in this process. Here locally, through the Pregnancy Center, across the state through our Tennessee Pregnancy Center Network, where I serve as vice president, around the country where I speak on the issue of life, and in meetings like I'm going to be at this week. And then next Sunday, when I'll be at the March for Life and speaking on the issue of life and why it matters. Look, there's part of me saying, is this the direction that I need to go? Is, are these the conversations that I need to have? But Or do I need to disengage, remove myself, and just say, frankly, to heck with it. And that's the tough part, man. I, I, it's tough. It's frustrating. Because it seems so simple. Now, nothing's simple in, in 2023, but it seems so simple. Do we protect life or not? And in many cases, we do that. But when it comes to abortion, for whatever reason... It's the golden calf. It's the one they can't let go of. It's the one that, no, we have to be able to end the life of our children in the womb. We, and, and so it, it's, a, it's a wrestling match. And the one that gets put in the middle is the baby and the mom. The baby has no say in the matter. The mom's scared out of her mind, and no one has given her good counsel. And so they're pitted against each other in the middle. And our society does that. Our secular culture pits the baby against the mom and the mom against the baby. And so, as I said earlier, the answer isn't a next election. Now, elections matter. The answer isn't a court decision, although courts matter. The answer is revival. The answer is having these tough conversations. The answer is sitting down at the table and thinking through how we reach the nation. The answer is how we raise our young people up to understand the value of life, when life begins, and what we're going to do to protect it. The answer is raising our young men up to be the dads that they've been called to be. Raising our young women up to be the moms that they've been called to be. My little girl the other day said something to the effect of, of wanting to have babies and, and how to balance that with 
also wanting to, to achieve her dreams. And, and me and her mom were able to look at her and say, you can have both. But society would say otherwise. But we can tell her and we can tell women today that you can have your baby and your dreams. You do not have to choose one over the other. And anyone that would tell you otherwise is lying to your face. And they don't have your best interests at heart. So that's how we make this trajectory change. We unapologetically stand for the truth with love and grace and mercy. We unapologetically stand for the vulnerable in our society, both in the womb and out of the womb. We do that. The elections will take care of themselves. We do that, and the court decisions will take care of themselves. But folks, we've got to practice what we preach. We can't just be yelling on social media. We can't just be ranting and raving with neighbors. We have to actually love people around us. We need to foster. We need to adopt. We need to partner with pregnancy centers. We need to partner with life-celebrating organizations. We need to make our businesses places that, that foster and, and cultivate family. We do those things, and, and things will change. It's just going to take effort, and it is worth the effort. I'll talk to you next week. I'll give you an update on what all happened in D.C. and and what happened at the Local March for Life here in Knoxville. It's going to be on January 22nd, Local March for Life. Tennessee Rights to Life will have all that information for you. Look them up online. Uh, Hope to see you there. We'll talk to you next week.